The following is a Voices of Experience broadcast that was originally aired on February 15th of 2021. Enjoy. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, along with producer Benny Mathers. Hope you are getting through the big snowstorm of 2021. It looks like we are getting back to our normal weather, but still stay safe. It's going to be rough driving out there. Today, we have two guests. Ron Bailey, founder of Seattle's Moisture Festival. The Seattle Moisture Festival was founded by Ron 16 years ago. Until the pandemic hit, the vaudeville-style shows were a staple in Hales Ales Palladium in Fremont. Will Seattle's Moisture Festival survive? Of course it will. Ron will tell us why in about 15 minutes and some of the other details about the upcoming show. It's going to be held on April Fool's Day, but it's going to be virtual. But first up, Emmy Award-winning health reporter, epidemiologist, and medical doctor Seema Yasmin is with us. She is director of the Stanford Center for Health Communication and assistant professor at Stanford University School of Medicine. Now, all of this is not enough to keep her occupied. She also wrote a book called Viral BS, Medical Myths and Why We Fall for Them. Let's start with myth number one. It's current and it's very top of mind, COVID-19 and the vaccine. There are so many myths and conspiracies circulating about COVID-19 and about COVID-19 vaccines, especially now. And I think the thing to remember is this is not a new phenomenon. So even this book, people say to me, oh, you have a book coming out about medical myths. It's such good timing. I've been working on this book for six years because this has been a problem. It's just that during times of epidemics or pandemics, when we have so much uncertainty and fear and anxiety, people really prey on that. And it can be a lot easier for us to fall for the myths. So my hope is that this book really gives people a toolkit, a set of skills for separating the facts from the fiction and really understanding like what is legitimate information versus what's misleading or inaccurate. And that can definitely apply to the COVID-19 pandemic as well. What do you think the biggest uh, myths are about the vaccinations? There are so many, to be honest, but I think one that I've been, or two that I've been hearing recently that have worried me. One is this idea that the vaccines change your DNA and they don't. But the reason I worry about that one is because we've not had mRNA vaccines before. And therefore, I think it's easy for people to think, oh, it says mRNA in the title. It must change our DNA. But it doesn't work like that because our DNA is inside our nucleus in our cell. This mRNA vaccine can't even get in there. In fact, the mRNA gets into our bodies, gets interpreted into the spike protein, then that mRNA itself actually dis disappears, disintegrates. It doesn't stick around for very long. But I can just see how that could be believable to people because they hear our mRNA, then they hear DNA. Another thing I'm hearing is that the vaccines cause infertility, which they don't. But that's been a really persistent myth. I've Many people have actually believed it. And so I want people to know that vaccines do not cause infertility. All these myths that have come about, have we ever seen anything like this, though? This seems to me to be over the top. It's cultural and it's all that mixed in as well. So like I said, it's not a new phenomenon, but I think you're right that it feels a lot worse this time. And I think that's partly because not only are we humans the same in nature, we still like to spread information, including misinformation. 
But now we have social media at our disposal. We have the internet. So not that false information is new, but we have newer ways of spreading it and spreading it super, super fast. But even like with the anti-vaccine messages, that didn't just start with COVID-19. Those messages and those movements have been around for a really long time. They go back decades, in fact. And so it's not a new idea that we fall for misinformation and disinformation. We saw the same thing happen during the Ebola epidemic of 2014 to 2016. Myself and others really studied that in detail to understand what were the myths, how were they spreading. And so many of us were actually like, oh, when we have a big epidemic or maybe even a global pandemic, the spread of misinformation and disinformation is going to be a big problem. And we wish that more of the public health agencies had paid attention to that, to be honest, because now we are living it. Not only a pandemic is hitting us, but what we call a misinfodemic, an epidemic of misinformation. And you've seen that can be deadly. That can cost people their lives when they fall for misinformation. I've always felt that the uh, medical industry, if that's that's not what we call it per se, but I've always felt that they could do a much better job of squashing a lot of these myths and they should get ahead of it. And I think you just said that. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think communication is so powerful. And what's happened in medicine and science over the years is we dismissed that as a key skill. We're like, no, we're scientists. We do the science. And then there are people like me who are like, but we have to know how to communicate the science. Because if we're bad at doing it, that vacuum gets filled by people who are spreading false information. So I do a lot of work on this, training scientists and healthcare workers on how to be more effective communicators. And honestly, I only came up against this and across this and it became my life's passion when I myself saw firsthand how dangerous this could be. Because I used to be a hospital doctor in England. I moved to America 10 years ago to serve as an officer in the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which is that the job that Kate Winslet's character plays in Contagion, where oh basically gosh. you work for the CDC, you work for the federal government, right? And you get sent to wherever there's an epidemic to try and stop the spread of disease. And I loved that job. But very early on, I realized, hold on, everywhere that I get sent where there's an epidemic, it's not just a virus that's spreading. It's also false information about that virus. And that false information is really dangerous. It's making people believe all sorts of weird things. It's making them very vulnerable, making it harder for me to do my job. And it was at that point that after a few years at the CDC, I went back to school and I went to journalism school because I realized the power of public health is really in journalism and in getting this information out there. So a lot of my life's work is convincing other doctors and scientists that it's not okay to just be a brilliant scientist or a great doctor. You have to be a good communicator. Otherwise, all of our good work can fall apart. Music to my ears and congratulations for doing that because that is so needed. And um, I'm so happy to hear you made those efforts to do that because that's going to make the difference. I have a deep affiliation with the Edward R. Murrow College of Communication at Washington State University. And his legacy to me was to seek the truth. And there's a quote, one of his more famous quotes, that I think goes to the heart of the matter on this. To be persuasive, we must be believable. To be believable, we must be credible. And to be credible, we must be truthful. So if the information isn't truthful, but you as a recipient are hearing it over and over and over again, and it's not challenged, you're going to believe it. And why wouldn't you? Absolutely. And when you say truth, 
it also makes me think about this idea that we have to be truthful about how science is done, who does science, and the history of science. Because the history of science isn't all squeaky clean. It's full of these unethical experiments and all these issues that we pay current consequences for. And I think until we talk about that, you don't really get to the heart of why people distrust science or may not trust the vaccine when actually really bad things have happened at the hands of scientists and doctors. So for me, truth also means talking about these really difficult things, but trying to atone for the bad history of science and medicine so that people do have more faith in us and more faith in the process. Transparency. It's so important. Transparency, honesty, building relationships with people and having two-way conversations. So it's not just, I'm the doctor, I'm the scientist, I know everything, talk to me, listen to me. You have to understand why somebody in the first place may not want to vaccinate their kid. You have to understand in the first place why somebody might be wary of a new vaccine. And until you really connect with them and understand why, and you know, you talk to six parents who are vaccine hesitant, you may get six very different reasons for why they're vaccine hesitant. But until you understand that, you can't have an effective conversation. An effective conversation isn't just you hitting them with facts. In fact, all the studies, many of the studies show that just bombarding people with facts can make them kind of dig their heels into their existing beliefs even more. You have to listen to people first. You have to have compassion and empathy, build your relationship, and that's how you have good communication. I want to move quickly into some other topics in your book. And you even address, like, leftover food. And uh, to get right to it, how long can you safely store leftovers? The point here is that many Americans end up in the ER every year because of very serious food poisoning. So we have to be careful about this. Of course, the amount of time that you can keep something before you throw it out depends on what the food is, how it was prepared, how you've stored it. But even frozen food has a shelf life. You know, we often think you stick it in the freezer, it's going to be fine forever. It's not. And that's why you have to put dates on things and label things. In this chapter in the book, I kind of go through different examples about the bugs and different kinds of food as well. And I share a resource where you can look up exactly which food you're talking about, how you prepared it, how you stored it. And based on that, should you throw it out or could you still safely eat it? Okay. And also one thing I thought was pretty much figured out, and that is football and brain disease. They go hand in hand. But is that the case? You um, kind of highlighted that in your book. Yeah, yeah, it is. And there's building evidence that any kind of sport, not just football, but boxing, soccer, if you're doing lots of headers, where you're getting these repetitive head injuries causes brain disease. We call it CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy. People have heard about this in the news. There's been NFL players and others who've gotten very sick. It's a disease that's diagnosed in death because it's done by an autopsy. But it's why some parents are either saying flat out no to their kids playing certain sports or people are developing safer ways for kids to play those sports without developing concussions repeatedly. Are you one of those uh, who maybe think that, let's say, young boys wanting to play football, that they should not play tackle football until maybe they're 18 years old? They shouldn't be playing this in youth football, maybe just flag football and get kind of the procedures down, the plays and what you do there. But you don't need to tackle at that age. That's what some people are saying, yeah. And I'm a public health doctor, so we think about risk and harm reduction as opposed to do this, don't do that. 
because we are pragmatists and we realize that people will do what they want anyway. And so it's better to tell people, okay, you're going to do such and such. Here's a way of doing such and such that's a bit safer, that minimizes your risk. And so there are people out there who are saying kids don't have to stop playing football. But as you said, there are other ways of playing that just lower their chances of getting knocked in the head time and time again. That's the real issue here. I'm curious about this and bad teeth causing heart disease. So there is a link between the health of your teeth and gums and the rest of your body. And it's why cardiologists or heart doctors say to us, get your teeth checked regularly and make sure you're brushing and flossing twice a day. And the reason for this is if you have swollen gums and gums that bleed, that allows bacteria in your mouth to get into your bloodstream. And that can then cause swelling and inflammation inside your blood vessels. And that can affect your blood vessels and your heart. So we're all connected. And that's why taking good care of your teeth and gums can actually pay off in many ways and will actually protect your blood vessels and your heart as well. The book is called Viral BS, Medical Myths and Why We Fall for Them, available on Amazon and other bookstore sites. It's so refreshing to have someone like Dr. Yasmin, who knows that the medical field has to do a better job of communicating with the public about health-related issues and debunking false claims. Otherwise, the extremes becomes the mainstream. Not doing this can end up costing thousands of lives as it has done with COVID-19. According to over a dozen medical experts convened by the medical journal Lancer, 40% of deaths could have been avoided in the U.S. if the virus had been taken more seriously by millions of people. Wear a mask, social distance, and stay away from indoor gatherings. My personal view? Every action we take brings with it an element of risk. Whether boarding a plane or driving to the airport, there is always a possibility that something could go wrong. When it comes to the COVID vaccine, however, I listen to the doctors and scientists like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Yasmin, and I'm at peace with doing that. It does make life easier if you listen to the experts. Say I'm on a flight and the pilot says, we have turbulence ahead, so fasten your seatbelts. Do I? Or have you seen anyone shaking his fists at the pilot saying, I will not fasten my seatbelt. You are infringing on my individual liberty or some other nonsense like that. I trust the pilot. He knows a lot more than me about what to do in an airplane. I did get my first vaccine shot and will hopefully receive my second shot in a couple of weeks. I will keep you posted as to how it goes. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. If you have questions, comments, or topics that you would like to suggest for future shows, call Paul at 206-714-8154. That's 206-714-8154. The following is a Voices of Experience broadcast that was originally aired on February 15th of 2021. Enjoy. Ron Bailey, founder of Seattle's Moisture Festival, is with us. The festival can be best described as an assortment of entertainment that includes jugglers, musicians, comedians, dancers, clowns, and much more. Think vaudeville. The first festival took place 16 years ago. Hales Ales Palladium in Fremont hosts the Moisture Festival. This venue could not be better. 
And basically, you just have to see it to really believe it and enjoy it. The Live Moisture Festival was sidelined last year and will be again this year. The spring shows have been taking the virtual route. This year's Moisture Festival will be virtual again and begin on April Fool's Day. Ron is hoping the show will return live in 2022. I asked Ron, when did it become apparent to him that there would not be a live show in 2020? Early on, when we really began to understand what this was, we realized there, there was no choice but to cancel the festival. So that, that was good in that we didn't go back and forth, well, should we, shouldn't we, and waste time with that. Right away, we just went, we have to cancel it and figure out how to keep the whole community involved to make sure that we could have a festival either this year, which turns out to be not likely. But even back then, we looked at the situation and went, it probably will not be until 2022 before we can do an in-person festival. And the challenge, and I, I know you know what I'm talking about, is like the magic of the festival is a group of people in a room watching a great variety show, laughing, yelling together. That's hard to duplicate. So the idea of doing something other than live performances was just a daunting challenge. And the interesting thing is, is that people have expressed how much they miss that aspect of the festival. Getting a room full of people with their families and laughing and enjoying a good show. In this case, how important this festival has become to a lot of people. That's true. And, and, and the other thing is with the, the group that puts on this festival, you know, it's a combination of we have a small staff that gets paid and then, and then the, the people that really pull it off, most of them are, are doing the work in, as volunteers. And that core stayed strong. It's like it didn't really falter. And also the board of directors stayed strong. No one doubted that uh, there was a future for the festival. No one was like, well, we might as well just throw in the towel. It was more like, okay, let's concentrate and figure out what we have to do to make it through the downtime. And how could we take advantage of that downtime? You know, like documenting the first 16 years, like looking at uh, different ways to fundraise and, and how can we just uh, keep the community engaged? And so, you know, we, we did start doing uh, some online shows featuring some of the artists that have been in the festival. As we started reviewing the archival footage of the shows, and realized there have been so many good acts that have come on that stage. And you combine a really talented performer with a really good audience. It's something to watch, even, even on video. We started putting together these online shows just as a way to sort of remind people, keep it in your mind that this is what it was and this is what it can be again so we started a fundraising campaign and ambitiously said we, we needed to make $120,000 if we were ever to put it on again. And within eight months, we had, we had raised that money. 
Yeah, and that's very interesting. Are you going to maybe continue, maybe, or you discuss this uh, combination of live shows and then doing it online? As, as we were shut down, is discovering other ways to, you know, to make the festival happen online, ways that we didn't really think about. People are doing shows that involve a live Zoom element. And this is what we've done also is like you have the archival footage, but then you have someone who's on the screen that's right there at that moment. And so we've certainly learned a lot about how to do an online show, how to do a virtual show. And so we, we have made the decision to do four days in April, beginning April Fool's. So that's a Thursday night, and so we're going to do Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then a Sunday matinee. And we're going to see what we can create that resembles some of the fun. The name doesn't really explain that it's a comedy variety festival, but that's what it is. It's just a gathering of uh, comedy variety acts. Can we do that virtually? I've been to probably 10 or 15 shows over the last several years. It is hard to imagine doing it online because of the people in the audience and the acts. There's so much interaction, the band and everything. But that doesn't say it can't be done and there couldn't be some sort of play either way going forward. So it'll be interesting to see that and how that unfolds. I look at the festival myself and what I thought before I came to my first Moisture Festival. What strikes me is the incredibly different acts, the unique acts, but also how much talent is up there and how much uniqueness of each individual person that brings their event to the stage, brings their presence to the stage. It's it's phenomenal. And I think what I would suggest I want to do is get something out here is for people to look at this online if they haven't been there before, just to get an idea of what this is about. Yeah. It's as we have struggled, we've talked about this and I know your board talks about this a lot. It's a very difficult thing to describe. So once you see it though, you're kind of hooked. At least that's was my experience and you know the the funny thing is is like where are these performers when they're not at the festival you know they're so talented and they do their best to you know do corporate events whatever they can do uh, you know county fairs and and this and that but one of the really good elements of the of the festival is that you bring them all together so there's this interaction between all of these very unique strange acts and that that's a lot of the the magic as well because they watch each other they're sort of competitive with each other there's several artists that have that have found different talents that they always had but they just didn't explore them what they do for a live audience they just can't do right now and so they've just had to be creative with how they can use their talents. If anybody wants to visit the April Fool's show on the internet, how would they do that? Well, you can always get uh, information at moisturefestival.org or .com, either one of them works. You can sign up for an email, sort of a newsletter on that website and always, you know, figure out what we're doing. And that also lets people know about our, we've done like online shows every two months. But for the virtual festival, that will certainly be on the, the homepage of our, of our website. 
Visit moisturefestival.org to find out about the upcoming acts, past acts, and this year's Moisture Festival, which begins virtually on April Fool's Day. In my opinion, this is the best entertainment in Seattle that you may not have ever heard of. Ron said that Seattle's DNA made it possible for the festival to flourish over the years. Again, visit moisturefestival.org, all one word. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. I would like to thank Dr. Seema Yasmin and Ron Bailey for sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Any comments on today's show or anything else you've heard or just want to give us your thoughts about anything, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. Just keep your comments down to a few seconds or so, or not too long anyhow, and I'll get it on the air. That's 425-653-1166. What is Voices of Experience all about? We talk with people with experience in public affairs, travel, entertainment, education, fitness, with an emphasis on entrepreneurship. My name is Paul Casey, and along with producer Benny Mathers, thanks for listening. Just before we go, I'd like to read something I read in Inc.com, part of Inc. Magazine, about what Warren Buffett had to say. And I glanced at the headline, and it said, by far the best investment. And I thought, oh, I'll just look and see what he's recommending now in terms of investments. But it was something entirely different. He said that the best investment that you can make is developing your communication skills, both in writing and in person. And he said that he feels that this can increase your value by at least 50%. He also said, never stop learning. Warren Buffett has become one hell of a lot better investor since the day I met him, and so have I. The game is to keep learning, and I don't think people are going to keep learning who don't like the learning process. And that's Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's partner at Berkshire Hathaway. Also, you will move in the direction of the people that you associate with. So it's important to associate with people that are better than yourself. We are the average of the five people we spend most of our time with. Make sure to associate with those further along the path who can potentially help you to learn new things, grow, and advance your career. One classic piece of Warren Buffett's advice may be a good starting point to your learning process. Overcome the bad habits that may be keeping you from achieving your full potential. Buffett once said, I see people with these self-destructive behavior patterns. They really are entrapped by them. Again, that's advice from Warren Buffett, Inc.com, Inc. Magazine. Quote of the week, your time is limited, so don't waste it by living someone else's life. Do not be trapped by dogma, which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Steve Jobs. And finally, just like Warren Buffett and Steve Jobs, 
we always say on this show that experience is your best teacher.